Hey everyone, I'm Deke. This is my buddy, Lewis Beard. You may know him on the internet as The Wirelight. Uh, he's an amazing uh, songwriter and musician that I've worked with a lot. And he happens to share my love of the band Oasis. Welcome, Lewis. Hey, happy to be here. Uh, I should clarify a little bit though, in terms of my love of the band Oasis, it's probably different than your love of the band Oasis. Uh, well, I wouldn't you're... describe myself as like a hardcore super fan. I'm, a, I'm more of a strong appreciator, I would say. Yeah, yeah. Well, you're a little bit younger than me, too. So I think the era in which they kind of dropped is like, you know, pretty important to like how much you love them or kind of, you know, what their influence was like. For sure. And that was something I wanted to talk about once we get through the intro portion, because I am curious about what the eras that we grew up in, which were pretty close to each other, yeah. uh, had to do with shaping our appreciation of Oasis. Yeah. So, uh, as you can guess now, I, I asked Lewis here to do this thing with me because I, I do have this love affair with the Gallagher brothers, um, Noel and Liam, and they're effectively the band Oasis. There have been many other people in the band over the years, but they're kind of the heart, soul, and ass of the band Oasis. Well put. <laughs> yeah, um, but their band was like prolific in the 90s. They produced some of the most iconic and memorable songs of the decade. Um, I don't think anyone can deny that. And they weren't a grunge band, you know, which is kind of crazy that that whole era was defined by grunge rock. But Oasis was one of the most uh, selling bands of that decade. Um, and they were not even close to grunge. Uh, they were a totally different genre of music. I think um, they almost describe themselves as like anti-grunge, right? Is that the way they look at it? Britpop is a response to... 90s grunge and Nirvana and that kind of thing? Well, I, you know, I watched a couple of documentaries to kind of prepare for this. And there's a quote from Noel, who's, you know, kind of the main songwriter, kind of the force behind the band. And he says that his goal was to knock Phil Collins off the charts. Really? You know, so, yeah. So I think in the early 90s, Phil Collins was still, you know, he was kind of the powerhouse from the late 80s and was... I, probably in Britain, a way more popular, you know, probably had lots of number ones in Britain. I mean, he did well in the States too, but sure. I think at that point, you know, that Noel was like super like anti eighties, that whole thing, um, which I really appreciate. And the funny thing is, which I think we'll get to later is that I think Noel's newest record sounds more like Phil Collins than it does. Absolutely. <laughs> it all comes full circle. Yeah. I feel like Phil Collins is a much different target to try and take down than Kurt Cobain and Nirvana. <laughs> right. Yeah. But, you know, either way, I think that Oasis, you know, they had a great decade of music where they just had number one after number one, huge selling records. And then even kind of later in their career, kind of like the last five years or so, six years, they still put out really good records. And in my opinion, their records started to sound good. Like they, they actually started to have good production, good engineers, and, and they had great songwriting. And Liam actually started to write more songs. And... um you know, and so the, the sound changed and I don't think they were doing Wonderwall kind of hits anymore, but in my opinion, their catalogs are just full of great songs. Um, totally. it, it's kind of why I like them so much is because, uh, I'm a fan of, of artists that can consistently create music. That's good. Not just have a couple of songs that are, you know, big hits with good melodies and then a bunch of filler garbage. Um, and I think that they, they did that really well. And, you know, now, Noel, Noel kind of never stopped. Liam, um, when Oasis ended in like 2009-ish, I think, basically Noel left the band and then Oasis became the band BDI effectively. Nobody, everybody else was the same. And they put out a couple of records that didn't do so well. 
and Noel solo project actually did pretty well in, in the mm -hmm. early days. Um, but since in the last like three or four years, Liam has had this comeback kind of career that started where he's gotten, you know, these producers and songwriters to work with him. And in my opinion, he's putting out some pretty kick-ass records. Um, he is, yeah. And it's, it's interesting that like at this point, I guess they've had enough time on their own to really kind of become the, the full versions of themselves, right? So Liam had to kind of had this false start with BDI that like didn't really work out all that well. Although I think it was interesting what he did with BDI. Like he had the whole team of Oasis and then decided to work with some really interesting producers, I thought. Yeah. And some of the songs that came out of there, I thought, especially when he had Dave Sitek, uh, I think is how you say it, Sitek, uh -huh. from uh, TV on the radio. I think these songs almost sound like TV on the radio songs by way of Liam Gallagher, which is cool. Yeah. Uh, but it wasn't ultimately all that successful. But uh, yeah, the current Liam output really feels like he finally has gotten the correct army of people behind him to put out what it's is good Liam music. Yeah, did did you have an opportunity to watch that Liam documentary? I did and it was it was interesting. I mean, it definitely felt like a little bit of a puff piece. Like I think it was very yeah, pro yeah. Liam, very anti Noel. Yeah. I think they maybe mentioned Noel twice in the whole hour and a half documentary, which is really interesting because I feel like it's a major focal point for Liam and what he's doing, but we're not going to talk about that as part of this documentary. Um, but yeah, it seems like uh, he had some major nerves coming out of uh, Oasis's breakup in 2009 and then BDI not doing well and he could have very much just quit making music in whatever year that was 2014 2015 but decided to kind of come back to it and give it a second try with all these other songwriters and stuff and it's worked out pretty well yeah it seems like you know and again and this is from that documentary but it, it feels like that he he I guess met this woman who's his manager and I guess like his yeah. I don't know if they're married now but his partner effectively and I think she encouraged him to do this, you know, which is, is really interesting. I think that, you know, again, like you said, it's a puff piece. All documentaries are a puff piece to some degree, you know, like there's some bias, but I think that one thing that I took away from that documentary is that I think that Liam did kind of get a dose of humble pie. Like <laughs> he's, I mean, Liam and Noel Gallagher are probably the two biggest egomaniac musicians on the freaking planet, you know, Absolutely. like, and that's kind of the another interesting thing about how much I dig them is that I kind of despise that egoic, you know, <laughs> way that musicians, you know, rock stars, like I've always kind of hated the Jim Morrison effect. Mm -hmm. You know, everybody wants to be like a drug addict womanizer. I'm like, that's not cool. <laughs> Just write good music, you know. But they do um, it so authentically, like they truly are these people and they are unabashed dickheads and they can't turn it off. Yeah, it's it's really interesting. And 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 it it's kind of this weird paradox with me because it's like, you'd think I would hate them because of this. Um, you know, but I kind of see through their bullshit to a degree, you know, I kind of mm -hmm. see when you listen to the kind of music that they write in the, in the lyrics they write and, and how they sing those songs, like you can't be a shallow piece of shit to do that. You know, yep. it actually requires some, something deeper to do that. And, and I think that's what I connect with even though I think I would never want to be in a room with either one of them. I'd never want to talk to either one of them. It would just oh, be I agree. Like awful. There's a moment in that uh, Liam documentary where he meets Chris Martin from Coldplay. And I can't imagine two more like diametrically opposed people trying to have a conversation. I'm sure Chris Martin was like, this fucking sucks. Like I can't <laughs> right. talk. To <laughs> right. Like I'm going to get beat up if I say the wrong thing. <laughs> yeah. Uh, yeah. But yeah, I, I totally agree. And I think there's a certain lack of self-consciousness maybe that, um, especially in Liam's music, uh, 
I feel like a lot of his lyrics in the latter day Liam output are very geared towards commenting on Oasis or commenting on Noel. And he's not even really trying to hide it. Like it's very clear what he's talking about and all of this stuff. Yeah. Um, and if I were him and I were writing these songs, I think I'd try to more cleverly disguise what I was talking about than have this kind of like heart of my sleeve record out there. That's like clearly about my brother. Yeah. But he doesn't seem to care. Well, and I think there's, I think that's some marketing, honestly, like if you think Maybe. about it, BDI was kind of what you just described. It was like new producers. Noel was not a writer. It was, you know, it was more like experimental in terms of the way the music came across. Um, but it, it didn't, it just didn't do very, I have a goat in my studio. I, I was about to comment this, on the goat yeah. in your studio. Yeah. My, uh, my Nobody dog, knows. my dog Banjo has figured out how to open the studio door, which is this big, heavy, like bay door. He opens it <laughs> and then the goats come in. So that's what's that's going on. I think on. you've got a dog in there. And I was closer. And I was like, that's not even a dog. That's an actual <laughs> farm animal that's wandered into your, <laughs> your control room. Yeah. I'm just going to let it happen for now. I'm hoping that like Sarah will get home and then come in and help me um, <laughs> since I'm like in the middle of a podcast. But, um, Let's see. So, uh, oh, what I wanted to say about, you know, Liam's lyrics and stuff is I think that it's kind of a, it's kind of a marketing strategy to a degree because now that his music sounds like Oasis again, and his lyrical content is this very directed kind of thing, I think people are responding to it. You know, I think it's, he's doing well because of the angle that he's taking. And, and you, you can look at that as an artist and say like, oh, well, that's, that's bullshit. You know, it's basically corporate garbage, but on the flip side, something that I appreciate about him is he says, like, look, I'm not a songwriter. I'm a singer. I'm a rock and roll right. singer. And in order to be a rock and roll singer, you need a rock and roll band. You need you need songs that that do that. And and he is a songwriter on almost all of his stuff, um, but he's not he requires some help, you know, where I think Noel is Noel's Noel's ego is far exceeded Liam's because of his ability to write hits. Yeah, and I think that that I think that's totally true, and I think that that dynamic really affected what they wrote or or had people help them write once uh, Oasis broke up, because you know uh, to a certain extent Liam's more of a blank slate here. Like he has not been in charge of writing all the songs. He's worked on songs. He's written some stuff, but when Oasis breaks up, he's got to sit there and think to himself, like, okay, am I going to try and write songs? Like, what am I going to do? I am just a front man to a certain extent. And I think that being a blank slate there really helped him in some ways at first because he got to lean on other people. And like he, he, he found interesting people to lean on through uh, Lily White and Dave Sitek and stuff like that's that's an interesting direction for his music to go. And I think those first two BD album, BDI's albums reflected a pretty different direction, whereas Noel, as soon as he was solo with High Flying Birds, it just sounded like a continuation of Oasis, for better or worse. Like a few totally. tweaks to it. Like, I mean... I think Noel, if there's any change, if there's any difference, it's that he's got more of like a the word I can think of is rollicking, like kind of this like rollicking beat thing that he does for a lot of his uh, songs. I, I, yeah, I think that I think that there's more psychedelics to it as well. You know, yeah. like he, and, and something that, you know, we can talk about a little bit. It was it's just kind of the the history of the band in terms of band members and like players and stuff like Oasis always had shitty drummers. Mm -hmm. I mean, their their rhythm section was not very good up until, you know, the, like, I would say the heathen chemistry record where they kind of got this personnel change and it really started to change on don't believe the truth in 2005 because they, they got Zach Starkey, who is Ringo Starr's mm -hmm. son uh, to play for him. And he's a sick drummer. Um, I know that. <laughs> but I think that, I think that Noel, you know, with his first record was like, look, now I have access to killer musicians 
mm-hmm. you know, I can get, I mean, I think that his, um, I want to say like the, his bass player was from the Zootons. Mm-hmm. Um, I think one of the guys was a guy that, that's done a lot of stuff with Beck. You know, he just had like this fresh band of like, you know, really good musicians. And I think that he took advantage of that with those kinds of things you're talking about with the rhythm section, yeah. being able to accomplish things in production and on the records that like, like he couldn't do in a band of, of honestly, Oasis, the, the, the musicianship of Oasis was pretty amateur compared to like the grunge scene. You look at bands like Pearl Jam or Soundgarden. I mean, those guys could fucking play like they were really good. Mm-hmm. Um, and Oasis, they didn't really have that. I mean, you know, Noel would pull some of these kind of classic rock lead kind of pieces, but like he was not, he couldn't play like Jimmy Page or anything. He was doing like really simple kind of Neil Young leads. Yeah, um, and I feel like Oasis kind of put themselves in a box. They created the Oasis formula, which was super successful, and they just kind of kept hitting it without expanding beyond it. And then when they finally broke up, Liam and Noel could both kind of get outside the Oasis box and do different stuff until they both kind of came around back to it in Liam's case. Like he was doing some different stuff there for a little bit, and it did sound very different from Oasis. Yeah, uh, Noel's stuff never sounded that much different because it's still Noel, even dressed up in the psychedelia and the expanded rhythm section. You can still tell when it's a Noel Gallagher song, or at least I can. It sounds right. It sounds right. like Oasis to me, but just kind of a different flavor of it. And just to kind of go back here and set this up for anybody who's listening to this that's not like really familiar with Oasis. Basically, the band started with. Liam, who is the younger brother, the lead singer, um, him and the other guys in the band, which were basically in the band for most of the early career for, you know, up till like 2000 or so. But the band started and Noel was not in a band. Noel was actually a roadie for some, you know, no name band from England at the time. He was like a drum tech or something. And, um, you know, he was kind of like a closet songwriter you know, like a lot of people are, you, you write songs, but you're not really pursuing like an ambition of like trying to become something. And, and kind of, so the way the whole thing started was, you know, Noel got home from this long, like year tour or something. And his little brother has this band that's like making noise. And he's like, fuck that. You know, <laughs> like what's, well, I want to, I want to be in this band. And, and more than that, I think that, you know, they wanted him in the band because they knew that he was a songwriter. And, um, so really the, like the incarnation of the band was actually this kind of really beautiful brotherly love story where you've got these two brothers that kind of do respect each other. And they're like, wow, this could be something really cool. And, and as Noel says in, uh, the supersonic documentary, he says that once he heard his song played by a band, it was over. It was like, this is what I could be doing. And, and I think at that point, he kind of said, like, look, you know, I'll be in the band, but I'm writing the songs and, you know, I'm directing the, sh- the ship. And he basically did for their entire career. He's, you know, he's a producer on every single record. He wrote, I would say, 90 percent of the songs for their entire career. There were probably around 2000. Liam started to get some songs on the records. And then when they they got uh I, th- I think he, I call him Jim Archer, but I think he goes by Gim, which is a interesting mm. name, but, um, and Andy Bell, those two guys joined and they're on, uh, heathen chemistry. Don't believe the truth and dig out your soul. And they are really good musicians who played with a lot of other like known, you know, British, um, like acts. And, um, 
I think there's like a massive like chopper going by. Like I feel like be here now is about to start. Like that's like the chopper. My dog just started barking. The doorbell just rang. I don't know what the fuck's going. (laughs) The the opening of the record be here now though is like a helicopter coming in. Yeah. Um. And uh. But anyway, so the um. Kind of kind of what happened with with the band though is you had them starting the band like that and then changing personnel over and over and over. And the history of the band is like Liam and Noel basically just were always fighting. Liam was this frontman egomaniac who would say the worst stuff on camera. He would offend people. He would talk about how much better they were than everybody. And Noel was always taking offense to that, which is so interesting to me because every time I've heard an interview with Noel, he does the exact same thing. Exactly. Yeah. There's no difference between the two. Yeah. It's like they both act like that. Um, I think Noel was maybe more concerned in the early days of trying to succeed before he acted like that. Where before he realized that like Liam's uh, antagonism could be harnessed as like a marketing tool because it really did end up becoming like part of the whole Oasis persona. Totally. That's something I was going to say is that, you know, I think if there's one band you can point to that Oasis, you know, sounds like or ripped off or emulates, it's the Beatles. But Mm. I would say that Liam's love for John Lydon, who is Johnny Rotten of the Sex Pistols, that's where the attitude of this band came from. That is probably, yeah, yeah, exactly. And, and I think that that actually really did, especially in that era, like in the nineties era, cocky rock stars were succeeding left and right. You know, it was like, Oh, you're an asshole. Let me give you $5 million to make a record. You know? Yeah. And they kept going for such an improbably long time that by the time kind of 2000 rolls around, they're still releasing the same records and doing the same shtick. People are just like, are you seriously still doing this? Yeah. And here we are in 2021 and they're still doing this. Like they've kept this going for a long time. So it's either sincere and authentic or they're just really good at embodying this persona for marketing purposes. No, I and I think, you know, this is probably a topic I don't want to get too deep into, but from a psychological standpoint, I think these guys are so lost in their own egos. They're so lost in that that world that they they probably don't truly connect with like the real version of themselves. You know, it's like or maybe we just don't see that. You know, I think the public facing version of a celebrity or whatever sometimes is is totally different than than how they actually are in the world. Um, yeah, and Liam says something about that in, in the Liam doc for uh, during the recording of As You Were. He makes some kind of offhand comment in the back of a limo where he's like, I don't know who I am anymore, which is a surprisingly sort of candid thing for someone like Liam to say. Obviously, this remains a puff piece. Like, who knows if this is a sincere emotion or not? But yeah, he seems like he was lost there for a little bit, too. And like, who knows who Liam is? He doesn't yeah. know. I don't know. But, you know, he's got kids and, and yep. you know, it seems like he's got a relationship with his children and stuff like that. So I, I think that, like, you kind of have to take everything you see from people in the media with a grain of salt. You know, and I sure. think that that's that's part of 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 how I'm able to, like, stomach their behavior, you know, compared to, like, you know, my love for their actual music and their songwriting. Right. Um, but um, so anyway, I guess just as, you know, time went on and they were kind of fighting and stuff and then they would get different members in the band. And in my opinion, the records started sounding better. And I think I do think the music yep. changed a little bit towards the end. I think that they were taking more direction from producers and stuff like that. They were they were actually trying to kind of get a little bit outside of the you know, don't look back in anger is basically like the the skeleton for every song we're going to write from. Yeah. The moment it came out in 95 to like 
early 2000, you know. I was going through a lot of their, like, most streamed songs to get ready for this conversation. And my note for every one of those is, sounds like Don't Look Back in Anger. Sounds like Don't Look Back in Anger. Like, yeah. you can hear that same descending chord progression in, like, every big chorus that they wrote after the year 2000. Yeah. Have you seen Oasis in concert? No. So I saw them back when Lakewood Amphitheater in Atlanta was still Lakewood Amphitheater. I don't know what it's called now. I think it's like hi-fi by it's probably something totally different i've been now. to it since it changed it's it's the same vibe but yeah, it's not it's not liquid yeah. anymore but uh i saw them there and i was i was close i was in i was in the front and um you know they played don't look back in anger they had a really good band and it was a moment where it was like wow these this this band really did write classic songs like yeah. timeless songs like when when you when i think about making records and i think about something being timeless that that's really difficult to do mm -hmm you know, any era. I mean, I think you could even take Nirvana and say like, will that really be timeless in 30 more years? Mm -hmm. You know, I don't, I don't think smells like teen spirit holds a candle to don't look back in anger in terms of just being a timeless song that anyone could listen to and appreciate. And I think that's um, partly because, you know, I was talking about how Oasis created their own formula and boxed themselves in, but I think to a certain extent, because they were so limited, you know, it's just like the band members and these organic instruments, they're not doing a lot of crazy studio experimentation in that era uh it's accessible to everybody kind of going forward and i think that one also is such a good example of noel's songwriting formula he continues to do that too on his own solo records and i think he in particular is great at kind of creating these these timeless vibes there's one song that he had on one of his newer records that i was curious to see if you liked or disliked but to me it felt immediately timeless and that's holy mountain uh, that's that on the had, new record yeah on the new record with all the horns and it, to me it sounded like this immediately massive 1960s hit where i could see people like like all the screaming girls in the audience and like banging on the limo windows and stuff <laughs> yeah. like it felt like it felt like a huge song from 50 years ago right um, which is cool i don't know if it's been that successful today but uh it's another another accomplishment for noel i feel like yeah it seems like you know i feel like noel's records have kind of you know because he he kind of picked up where oasis stopped he never really stopped putting out music and like you said the the very first High Flying Birds record sounded like Oasis, right. but maybe a little better, honestly, in some ways, mm -hmm. like just as far as like the musicianship and that kind of thing. Um, but he started to experiment as his records went on. And I think that they did, they didn't do as well. You know, his experimentation from a commercial standpoint, they didn't do as well. But I think from a artistic uh, position, I think that, you know, I kind of appreciate where Noel's gone up to that record, that record, the, the, is it Who Built the Moon? Is that the name of that record? I think so. Yeah, and the rest of it doesn't do much for me. It's, it's really Holy Mountain that I like, and then they've got this kind of B-side cut, Dead in the Water, that's super stripped down, and that one's good yeah. because it sounds nothing like all this ornate, overproduced stuff yeah. in the rest of the record. So he has a brand new song. He just put out, this, is, this, is, this speaks to the ego of these guys. He has a greatest hits for his solo career, which is three albums. Wow. I mean, come on. <laughs> Come on! Does it have every song from all three albums on the greatest hit album? I mean, basically, it's like a it's like a double disc with demos and shit. You know, I mean, I know this all has to do with like trying to get out of your record contracts and fulfill stuff. I know that it's part of that, but it's like you don't need a greatest hits when you've got three solo records out. No, because he but, had enough big hits to even justify having greatest hits. How big are his greatest hits? Like he's got some that have lots of streams on Spotify, but like, <laughs> how big are high flying bird shows right now? Yeah, I don't, I don't, I don't think that, I don't think that Noel has, has really inclined in terms of listenership and, you know, accolades. And again, 
I don't really care about that kind of stuff. I, I'm more about the art and that, but I think in the, even in that scenario, I think that his, his songwriting has taken a hit to a degree because of his kind of experimentation, you know, like I think getting away from writing, don't look back in anger over and over is good as an artist. But I think like kind of where he's at with his new record is some of the stuff feels a little bit flat to me. Like it, it doesn't, it doesn't have the melodic um, impact that, you know, some of his earlier stuff had. But yeah, I feel like he went off in a weird direction a little bit. Uh, and, and for a little bit there, I can't remember which album, album it was that he was trying to do this, but did you follow that amorphous androgynous saga when he was working with them to create the next Dark Side of the Moon and just completely ate shit? Yeah, it's not It's not cool. It's Oh. It's weird. It's just... I and mean, it didn't work. It seems like it yeah. seems like he really had these high aspirations to do something totally different, which which I respect and I think is cool. And I think he needed to at that point. And I think the guys from uh, Amorphous Androgynous, who I know nothing about, I think they were excited to work with him on doing something this experimental. And it sounds like once he was in the studio and they were kind of digging into it, he was just incapable of actually getting outside of his null box. Like they yeah. wanted him to supposedly like record a solo 45 times just to kind of iterate on it until it was what they were looking for. And in typical Noel Gallagher fashion, he was like, fuck that. I'm not doing that. And like storms <laughs> out. And they're like, well, I guess this isn't going to work. Yeah. So um, he does have a, but he has a new song out that's on that greatest hits. Um, and it's a brand new song. It's called Flying on the Ground. And I don't know if he, what era he wrote it in. Like he, maybe he wrote this for the first record or something. I don't know. But I really dig it. Like it's been, it's of everything I've listened to over the past, you know, week or so, like, kind of prepping for this, that song will not get out of my head. Like I can't get out of my head. And it's also not like, it's not an unpleasant thing either. Like, you know, sometimes you'll listen to a terrible song. Yeah, yeah. And it's in your head, but this is the case where I kind of go back to it on, on first listen. I was like, Oh, this isn't all that great. And then like, it's in my head and then I'll listen again. And I'm like, Oh, maybe there's something there. And then, you know, yeah. five or six listens later, I'm like, I really like this song, you know? And, I'm, in the, I'm in the first stages of that right now. I, I listened to it a couple of times. I, I'm, I'm okay with it. Uh, it's got the usual, like, soaring Noel chorus. I appreciate that. Like, I always appreciate that. It's got a lot of orchestration, I feel like. A lot mm -hmm. of, like, saxophones and interesting instruments in the back. I think he's got female backing vocals for that mm -hmm. one, too, which is cool and a little bit different. Um, but to your point, I do have literally the, the main line of the chorus stuck in my head pretty much constantly, the, the flying on the ground. Wow. Yeah, it's it's good. And, and you know, to something you're speaking to about the production of the track, that's something that I think is really well done on a lot of his new music is, is even though that um, amorphous androgynous thing didn't really pan out, the kind of Pink Floyd-esque production on some of mm -hmm. his newer stuff is really good, like the string sections and the... Yeah. Um, the kind of psychedelic like overtones that just kind of live on stuff, I think is really cool. Um, I think like the palette in which he creates music now is really cool. Even if he yep. doesn't always like knock it out of the park with uh, with the song, I think that the palette that he's working with is like really pleasant to listen to. I agree. Um, and I think maybe he maybe he did take some lessons from that amorphous androgynous uh, experience. I think there were two songs on whatever record that was that that were kind of leftovers from those sessions. Uh, that do sound pretty different from the rest of the album, and they sound really good. They have that same kind of Noel hookiness to them. I think it's the Mexican and uh, another one I can't remember the name of. Uh, but they do sound a little more psychedelic, and the, the textures are really interesting and very not Noel-like. But I think he did kind of work to include those in later songs and later albums, even if he couldn't quite, you know, make the next Dark Side of the Moon, which was 
pretty ballsy thing to try and do in the first place. <laughs> yeah, that's kind yeah. of a ridiculous aspiration, to be honest. I think you like, shouldn't have said it out loud. Right. Um. So so let's let's kind of like start looking at kind of what you know we're talking a lot about Nolan what he's doing now. I want to talk a little bit about Liam because I think that you know, he's kind of more current, like with his restart, you know, like he had had some downtime where he wasn't doing anything and by his own words, kind of was thinking that he wasn't ever going to do anything. Um, and in the past three or four years, you know, he's, he put, he's put out two solo records. Um, the first of which, um, is, uh, as you were in 2017. And, you know, when this record came out, I was like so stoked for it. Cause I was like, what, I mean, how is he even putting out a record? Cause I know that right. his brother wrote all the songs. Yeah. Like who, um, who put this album together? And uh, yeah. And just, and my, you know, I think my first listen on that record, I was kind of floored because you can tell that it's super overproduced to a degree. Mm-hmm. Um, and that kind of turned me off a little bit, but again, the more I kind of listened, the more I kind of appreciated the angle in which it was approached. Um, because it's, it is effectively producers and writers listening mm-hmm. to Oasis mm-hmm. and Noel Gallagher, his brother, listening to his brother's writing style and then completely copying it. Yeah. Right. And, and modernizing it to a degree as far as production techniques and sounds, yeah. again, having great musicians, you know, just everything about the sounds of the records are really cool. But I just find it so interesting that you know, actually there are just writers and musicians and producers in this world that can just literally take someone's soul and just rip it off, you know? <laughs> and then it, and it works because you've got Liam, who was the yeah. original singer of those types of songs anyway, singing. Yeah, it feels like a natural fit, right? They just kind of repurposed Noel through an army of songwriters and did it really successfully, and it sounds good. Yeah, it's like if you did that same exact technique, but you just took a random no-name killer singer and put them in, it wouldn't work. Everyone right. like, you're a ripoff. You're ripping yeah. off Oasis. And it's like, well, how is Liam ripping off his own band? You know? <laughs> yeah. But, you can't but rip it, yourself off. You can rip your brother off, but like maybe no one's gonna notice because it just sounds like Oasis. Yeah, and I think that's the interesting thing about it is like no one really understands this backstory. They don't really know who the songwriter people don't think like that. They just go, well, I like the song or I don't like the song. They don't really worry about who wrote the song or, you know if they fought about it or, or how the credits get divvied out, you know? So it's, it's really interesting that, that it's almost like this one in a million chance that he could even succeed in this way. Right. It had to be this certain scenario. I think it's like parts of what you were saying where it's like, he's singing about his brother or the, the stories Mm -hmm. of Oasis. He's, you know, effectively singing songs that sound like Oasis again. It's that we're at a place in the world where you have these producers and writers that can do such a quality job mm-hmm. of taking the essence of what something was and really doing it well. I mean, you know, honestly, I think that his records sound so much better than the Oasis records. It's like, I kind of would rather listen to them. You mean from you like know? an engineering standpoint or just like the, the, the new song writing? I would say, I mean, obviously the songs aren't better than like the original, you know, right. like live forever, you know, don't look back in anger, right. that kind of stuff. Like they're not better than those songs, but I think that because the engineering so good, the mixing so good, the musicianship yeah. is so good, the way Liam's captured is so good, you know, all of those things really, right. they create this amalgamation that, that, that really makes me think that the records are on par with those Oasis records. 
yeah, and I think there's probably some degree of yeah, and there's probably some degree of nostalgia playing in there. I think because I, I agree with you when I listen to uh, as you were, I kind of have at first the feeling where I'm like, oh, I don't know about this. Like, what's what's the big song from that album? Uh, Wall of Glass. Like my first listen to Wall of Glass, I was like, okay, this sounds like an Oasis song. But then a couple of days later, it's still stuck in my head. I'm like, okay, it's it's tickling the same pleasure centers as Oasis did because it's like the same kind of shit. And yet it's updated for 2021 from like a technological standpoint. It sounds like it was produced in a really nice studio with really good musicians. Like you said, somehow Liam's voice has been captured incredibly. He sounds as good, if not better today uh, than he did back in the 90s. So it just feels like an updated version of Oasis for the modern era in a, in a really enjoyable way. Totally. I, I mean, it's, and I think both Liam and Noel benefit from these modern, you know, these kind of modern um, constructs. They benefit from the production, the engineering, the mixing. They benefit from musicianship. I mean, not to say that it's funny that I'm saying this. It's like, there, oh, there weren't great musicians back in the day. Of course there were, but based on just the way kind of technology has advanced in terms of learning, there are so many younger people that are so good. They're so proficient mm -hmm. at something, especially in this scenario where you say, Hey, we just want you to play guitar. Like that sounds like Oasis. Like, Oh, well, you know, I grew up listening to that. And so it's, <laughs> it's easy. It's like this thing. And I, you know, which I, I, I failed to mention at the beginning of the show, but you actually have played in an o Oasis cover band, right? I, I have, and I actively do. We are playing our third show, uh, January 2022. We have like a cover band that plays mostly the first couple albums. Uh, we play like every three or four years, which is a very, very rare uh, concert schedule. Yeah. But yeah, so most of my knowledge of early Oasis comes from having played these like same 2025 songs and learning them pretty in-depthly. Yeah. It's been fun. It's interesting. And I think that Going back to those songs now, kind of to the point again of, of these uh, Liam songs being updated for 2021, it makes me think of there's a, a trend right now in video games of remastering games from the 90s. And yeah. what people keep saying about remastering these games is they're being remastered to reflect the way these games are in your mind. Like if you went back and played a game from 95, you'd be like, this looks like shit. If you play the remastered version, you're playing what you kind of remember that game being incorrectly. Um, and I feel like that's sort of what these new Liam songs are like. They are what Oasis from the 90s sounds like in your mind. In your mind. And then you dude, go back to these yeah. 90s songs and you're like, oh, these like sound like shit from like a sonic standpoint. Yeah. Dude, you're a good podcaster. That's a really, that's a really <laughs> good uh, um, analogy you just made. Because I'm, I'm actually kind of, I'm in the video game world too, you know? So all these like, like Final Fantasy has had this crazy run of updates. They're yep. all eight, they're still like these eight bit or 16 bit looking games, but it's like you're saying there, it's it's not about changing something so that it's like, it's got crazy graphics and it looks, you know, like some new beautiful experience. It's more about, like you're saying, emulating um, like something that feels better like currently, but it, but it evokes the exact nostalgia that you got from when you originally played it. And I think you're totally right. And something right. that I didn't, I didn't really think about that, but it's very psychological and, and why this stuff mm -hmm. is succeeding is because it's doing that. It's evoking the thing that you loved about it in the beginning. And you don't really notice that it sounds better or worse. You don't really think of it that way until you go do, you know, what I call comparative listening. If you listen mm -hmm. to the the supersonic, you know, uh, like rock and roll star and live forever and all those songs off, definitely yeah. maybe 
they are a fucking shit show. Like they are sludgy as fuck. Yeah. Yeah. That, you know, and it took them, it took them a long time to get that record made because they kept getting different engineers and different mm-hmm. producers and the label, you know, the uh, label people weren't happy with it. And I think that there was a, at a point where Noel said, I don't care, just put out whatever we made, which is so like, how could you be nonchalant about your very first release on a major label record deal? It's like, because they're the Gallagher brothers, man. They don't give a shit. Yeah, they that's don't the care. <laughs> yeah, that's one of the things from listening back to definitely maybe. Uh, who was who was the producer of the first two or three? I think they keep the same guy for a little while, right? Yeah, Owen Morris, I think, is, is the person that's credited as who really kind of brought it together. He kind of right. took these different things from different sessions and kind of made it work. And and he's credited on uh, What's the Story Morning Glory too, which is... The, you know, probably one of the most massive records of all time. Yeah, and so it's, that's what I wanted to talk about for a second. I think it's really interesting going from definitely maybe to what's the story, because to me, even though they have similar kind of production qualities, they're pretty different records. The first one is like very anthem rock heavy. To me, it feels like, as we as we already mentioned, it's pretty like sludgy in terms of uh, engineering. Like it just sounds like this massive wall of sound and like distorted overdriven guitars. And I feel like Oasis at this point maybe due to their drumming not being that great, they just pick a beat and they would just like hammer that beat for three and a half minutes. Right. And there's no dynamic range to anything. Um, maybe the best representation of that is the song Columbia. That's like six and a half minutes of this like <laughs> disco beat. And like a tambourine comes in every now and then, and then goes away and it's fun. But it's like, what is this? And then they get to what's the story morning glory. And their two biggest songs, the two most massive Oasis songs ever maybe are Champagne Supernova and Wonderwall. And they're both acoustic ballads. And then Don't Look Back in Anger is a piano ballad. Yeah. So it's an interesting dynamic that they shifted there somehow. Yeah. You know, I, I know that the first record, the reason that it, it sounds the way it sounds is because they were trying to capture what the band sounded like live, right? Like the reason they got signed, the reason everybody loved them in 94 was because they just had this sound on stage and and they could never get it captured basically and so definitely right. maybe just ended up being kind of the best they could do to capture that live sound i think once that kind of did well you know i think that kind of when a band does well and then they they kind of advance in like how they do studio recordings they they have access to better studios or maybe better engineers and that kind of thing you can actually kind of think about the intricacies, the nuances of your songwriting a little bit more where that everyone's first record, most people's first record is like a, a, a stage banging. You know what I mean? It's like, we're a band. We wrote this in the room and this is what it feels like. Almost no one's second record ever sounds like that first record. Because the first record, you've probably been playing these songs live for four years. So like all you have to, all you have to record is these songs that you've been playing live. So you just take them straight to the studio and capture whatever that magic was. Exactly. And I think on the second record, obviously the follow-up was only a year later. Um, yeah. You know, which I'm sure that a lot of those songs were written, you know, kind of maybe, maybe some of them, were, of them were even written during the definitely maybe sessions or they were playing some of those out at their shows live before they even did that first record. It's a possibility. Um, right. So I think that, you know, maybe some of those, those slower tunes, you know, maybe those are tunes that Noel was playing in the bus or in the van, you know, writing that just weren't these big rockers, but you know, you can tell like he's such a melodic songwriter that, and he's, you know, he's effectively an acoustic guitar player. 
Mm-hmm. He's, you know, he plays some leads and stuff, but you know, I mean, I kind of really relate with him. I think this is kind of where I get this, but like, I am an acoustic guitar player. Yeah, you right? get the it's, idea. And I do the same thing. I think he probably writes every single song he writes at first on the acoustic guitar and then they take it to the band in the Oasis days and find a way to either boost it up to anthem level for like the big rockers or they just kind of add all of the strings and the bells and whistles to make it feel more anthemic. But yeah, it all starts out super basic and acoustic And I think he could play almost every song that he's written on an acoustic guitar and it would sound good in that yeah. way as well. And, and actually, if you get on the internet and just start browsing, you will find Noel doing every song, even songs oh, that Liam sang, you know, acoustic and all these different, you know, yeah. BBC radio sessions. And there's some really killer um, versions of songs out there from him that are, have great recordings. And, you know, all of that stuff is interesting, too. I mean, I, I really got down a rabbit hole. Like when I first, you know, reached out to you to do this, I was like. I was so fired up about it because I just, I don't know what it was. I saw, I saw something, a video or something, and I just kind of started going down that rabbit hole. And I realized like, I want to talk about this because of the impact that it had on me mm-hmm. as a, as a musician, you know, as a producer, as a songwriter, all these things like, you know, I've always like given so much credit to the grunge scene. I've given so much credit to Kurt Cobain and, and Chris Cornell and these people that they did have a, a massive impact on me. But when I really think about the emotive, like, evocation, like, mm-hmm. I think it came from Oasis. Like, you know, uh, definitely you're, maybe. You're doing some, like, some pretty deep psychoanalysis as part of this podcast. I mean, that's, I kind of do deep psychoanalysis <laughs> of everything that's just kind of how I am. But, no, it's just being podcasted, yeah. Yeah, but in, in 94, you know, I, I was born in 82, so I was 12 years old. I mean, when you're 12, like that's, music kind of starts to get on your radar sure. around that age when you start to become a teenager. Um, yeah, I was going to ask you about your early Oasis experience. Like, were you on the Oasis train in the Definitely Maybe era, or was it a little bit later? Definitely Maybe era. I mean, I remember hearing Live Forever there was a lot of stuff happening in 94. I mean, a lot of stuff. There was Green Day, I think, was out in 94. There was, yeah, yeah. you know, The Offspring. There was all that kind of era. There was like this, the 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 origin of the pop punk era was happening. Grunge rock was happening. It was in full-fledged. Then right. you had this kind of Oasis thing that was in the mix on the radio with all that stuff, which is crazy. Yeah. I mean, yeah, think and about that. Think about this. Like, so you were you were born in '82. I was born in '85. So I'm only three years younger than you. But that means that I was nine, versus you being twelve when all this stuff was happening. Yeah. So like, this all just completely went over my head because I was a nine year old. Right. But like, when you're twelve, you're actually kind of right at the right age to have this stuff actually make an impact on you and be listening to what's out there. I remember being in fifth grade, and having friends like singing Champagne Supernova like in the hallways and stuff. I remember that. Wow. Uh, but I was still such a little kid that like it didn't make much difference to me. I listened to uh, whatever my parents put on the radio at that point, which was like country and, and oldies. Uh-huh. So it wasn't until like way later and especially doing this Oasis cover band project that I really got a chance to dig into this stuff. So it's like a, a much later evolution for me. Right. Yeah, that's interesting. I mean, I think for me, you know, I, I think I've come to this realization or I've convinced myself of this <laughs> one or the other. But it's like, I think that. Oasis probably had the most fundamental and a fundamental impact on me um, of any band, any band. That's big. Like even more than the Beatles, which is a blasphemy to say. But I can't it's, believe you're saying it. I didn't know who the Beatles were. 
in 94, yeah. you know, like you just kind of said that was something's interesting that I didn't know, but you know, I didn't grow up with like the Beatles and rock and roll. I, you know, my dad's a carpenter. I would go down to his wood shop and he'd have top 40 country on, you know, that was what I listened there you go. to. Yeah, I mean, me too. Like, so I, I, I kind of assumed you did grow up with that stuff based on kind of the Deke persona. Yeah, no, I mean, I think if if some, uh, you know, I, I bet Garth Brooks had more of an impact on me than probably anything in rock and roll. You know, I think when I that was really... That might be biggest overlap then, Deke. I listened to a buttload of Garth <laughs> Brooks as a kid. <laughs> yeah, that's really interesting. I, but, you know, I think one of the reasons that I wanted to talk to you about this is because I think we share some of these melodic and structural sense when it comes to songwriting, production, arrangements, you know, how a melody is delivered and that kind of stuff. I, I think that we really share, you know, some similarities in how we think about that stuff. And I think it's, it's an Oasis style thinking. For sure. You know, I mean, they don't, there's no, well, I guess there are some songs where they just kind of mess around, but for the most part, they get to the point. It's like. They're, they're tight pop songs. Yeah. They're tightly constructed. Right. It's like, here's a verse that could be a chorus, yeah. <laughs> you know, here's the chorus, which is incredible. Here's a post chorus. That's better yeah. than the chorus. It's here's like, like 10 more hooks just for fun. Like enjoy these hooks. Right. And we're going to throw a piano melody in that's never <laughs> going to get out of your head. I mean, and, yeah. and it's when you think about stuff like that, now you think about, you know, modern pop, you think about, you know, Billie Eilish and Katy Perry and all this kind of, that kind of world. But it's like, Oasis was doing that thing in, in a format of a classic rock band effectively mm -hmm. in 94. And, you know, they're not bubblegum by any means, you know, but you know, my version of pop is the Beatles. It's like the yeah. Beatles are pop music. I mean, they were the pop of the sixties, but it's, it's something that is in my mind is delivering melodic hooks and um, you know, arrangements that evoke, kind of an emotion behind those melodic hooks. And I think Oasis does that probably better than anybody from that era. And it feels like almost unfairly, like that whole kind of setup went out of fashion at some point, like for a long time in the bands that I've been in and in my own songwriting, people ask you like, what, what genre of music do you make? Which is such an unfair question. There's no answer to that. Or like, what do you sound like? I don't know what I sound like, but I know what I try and do. And it's exactly what you just described, which is just like memorable melodies, catchy hooks, like, tight pop songs, everything done with intention, things along that line, rather than kind of like long meandering experimental type stuff. I don't know what genre that is, but it's what Oasis is doing too. And it feels like around like 2000, what they were doing maybe was not like cool anymore for a little bit. Although in, the, in a sense, Oasis is very evergreen. Like what they're doing should apply forever and be enjoyable to everyone forever. And I think that that's kind of becoming clear at this point. But like by the time I was in college, I think they were releasing... Um, standing on the shoulders of giants in 2000. I mean, I wasn't in college yet, but like I, there's a long blank spot for me in Oasis where I was not paying any attention to it. But going back and listening to those albums now, I appreciate them just as much as the earlier stuff, the songs that I like on there, because it's the same thing. Like the song Lila, I'd never heard before somehow. Oh, wow. That song's incredible. I love yeah. it. And like, that will be one I'm listening to for the next six months because this is like a new Oasis song for me. Yeah. Um, and so, yeah, I mean, they, they, were, they were consistent. They, they, kept, they kept hammering on this same set up and did it really well for a really long time, which is cool. Yeah, totally. And I, and, you know, I think honestly, that's what people want of a band. Unfortunately, I think that, you know, oh. these bands that try to reinvent themselves a lot of times with the exception of Radiohead fail miserably at that because once you, 
Well, yeah, once you've identified yourself as something, people just want that over and over. And so I think smartly, you know, they did that. I, you know, I, I really don't have a problem with that as long as the songwriting is good. You know, what I don't like is when somebody rips themselves off, but they don't have any other perspective to add, right? It's like, right. you know, I wouldn't say that like all of their, even though like we said that like their songs are kind of like trying to do Don't Look Back in Anger over and over, there's always, it's not like they're ripping off their melodies, you know, like they're writing new melodies that are mm -hmm. still good. They're still like, um, they're still memorable. And, and I think that it, it's this fine line, you know, I, something else I wanted to talk about was like, there's these bands that are derivative, right? We, we're kind of in this era right now. Like it's the same thing with video games. It's like, or movies, like we're trying to recreate all the stuff that everybody liked. Right. right. And bands are doing the same thing. So there's all these derivative bands. Actually, you posted something about going to see Dawes play the other day. Mm -hmm. And um, I, I love the first two Dawes records that were produced by Jonathan Wilson uh, in Laurel Canyon are, I love those records. I love them. I love the way they sound. I love the songwriting, the singing, and they're so derivative. They sound like Jackson sure. Brown. They sound like, you know, all of that, that era you know easy listening 70s. soft rock yeah but they do it so well and they do yep. it with an angle that makes it feel authentic right and i think dawes do, does that very well and i think oasis also did that very well you yeah know, and I, I think bands like that are, if we're looking at oasis as being derivative of say the beatles or dawes being derivative of the 70s and jackson brown i think maybe that's okay because they're repackaging this for a completely different generation right i mean I'm never going to be able to see the Beatles, but I can go see Oasis. I won't be able to see Jackson Brown, but I can see Dawes and kind of enjoy the same vibe and musicianship. In both of these cases, uh, the Dawes musicians are like second to none in terms of how good they are at doing what they do. Absolutely. So it's an, it's an extremely enjoyable live experience and not one that I could really replicate by going back to the 70s. Yeah, you know, that's another interesting point that I think is more like social psychology, which is that in a way these especially these more more successful say derivative and i'm using that a little bit loosely but like in a way they're actually carrying the torch of a, that legacy right you know i think that that part of me wants to just crucify you know anybody that that is a ripoff you know yeah. um i want to say like can't you come up with something original can't you do something unique but at the same time maybe from a zoomed out perspective over a long period of time the legacy of of something like Jackson Brown may live on through a band like Dawes, um, you know, yeah, or, or it's hard like, to be original. Uh, yeah, it, it, it is hard. And I think that, I think that the trick is, is to, to do it in an authentic way, right. Is to yeah. actually understand the essence of something. Uh, and then, and then, and you're able to create something in that space with that essence without actually like stealing their melodies or stealing their, you know, right i think that's where i draw the line is like don't just steal somebody's stuff understand them so well that you're able to kind of work in that space and i've got a great counter example for you of someone who's doing this wrong and it's probably off your radar but olivia rodrigo who is like one of the biggest streaming artists right now she's like a teen pop sensation um she had driver's license last year which was like billions and billions of streams um she has had to give out writing credits to a lot of artists from a lot of different genres from the past like 20 years like they've all come calling to be like hey olivia we like the song but like you clearly ripped me off and she's like you're right like here's the credit yeah and so she's just doling out writing credits um 
And she's, I think maybe she does write some of her own songs, but she's working with a team, a team of pop writers, and she's repurposing songs that were already very popular and kind of reselling them back to people in 2021. And the songs are enjoyable, I mean, for the same reasons the originals were, but it doesn't feel like an authentic recreation or an authentic attempt at making something new. Right. You know? Yeah, I think I think there's a lot of that going on where it's like, you know, because you have so many different kind of machines moving at the same time, you have a, a an industry machine that's effectively just trying to make money and then up and coming musicians and songwriters and stuff. They're just trying to get on the ride, you know, like, yeah, how do I get yeah. on that ride? How do I become famous sure. or whatever? And I think and, and unfortunately, I think what falls to the wayside is the artistic um, part of that. I think even somebody like Dawes, I mean, they're you know, they can sell small rooms, but I don't they're not, they're not going to become like the next you know, big hit band. I think that they're not in danger of breaking out. No. Yeah. I think that, you know, and even they are trying to do things that you know, are a little more experimental for them, mm -hmm. I think, than what they did in the early days. Sure. Um, but, you know, I think with getting it back to Oasis and kind of them being a derivative band, I think they are like maybe one of the first super derivative bands to succeed, you know, like they, they just stole from the Beatles effectively, right? Like yeah, you, you listen sure. to these certain ways that melodies play out in the songs, like, like small, like tailing runs or the way the piano walks move in an arrangement. And you're like, Oh, that's let it be. That's Hey Jude, or that's, you know, whatever. In the case of Liam Gallagher, he says flat up, I am trying to sound like John Lennon. Oh yeah. Yeah. And he does a very good job of it. I mean, yeah. it sounds just like, and they use a lot of the same sort of, I think, transitional chords. What I think of is the Oasis chords, which are that uh, E minor seventh and the A suspended. That they're all over right. everything. Yeah. And they, Beatles use those too. I mean, but you just don't think about it because Oasis packages these in giant anthem rock songs, right. whereas the Beatles didn't. Right. There were there wasn't giant anthem rock during right. the Beatles era. You know, I mean, anthem rock didn't even start until probably seventy in the early seventies. The Beatles were done by seventy. Well, so maybe it, that's something to think about, too. Like maybe in terms of being a derivative band until the Beatles came along, like what would you be derivative of? Like maybe the Oasis was the first band to like have the opportunity to look back at something and actually try and pull from it. I mean, um, this is probably too deep to go, but I mean, really, the <laughs> Beatles were the derivative band because, you know, Paul McCartney effectively would take something like Little Richard and then he'd write, you know, he'd write a, he would write um, uh, like Lady Madonna you know, or he, he has so many influences, you know, Bob Dylan was such a big influence on those guys. When you think of something like, you know, hide your love away or whatever, like yeah, yeah. the Beatles were taking all these styles from the fifties, from the forties, even you think of something like Martha, my dear, it's all, it's like, you know, show tunes effectively. They were, true. they were taking all of these different genres, but they did it better than anybody because they made it so uniquely theirs. Yeah, you you don't really point at them and go, oh, hey, you're ripping off Elvis there, right? Or you're ripping yeah, off. Yeah, they, they, they hit you know? the paper trail pretty well, so it feels like something totally new. Whereas Oasis was pretty upfront about it. They, like you said, they even say it. Like they're not going to pretend like it's not the case. They're like, yeah, these are Beatles songs. Yeah, yeah, totally. So, so there's a couple other things I want to I want to hit on quickly, which is, um, you know, there's all these like different guitar player channels on YouTube and stuff. Some that I watch, people like Rhett Scholl or, you know, there's these really cool channels with this kind of music. Uh, and I noticed that like Wonderwall is used like a meme almost. Yeah. <laughs> it actually is one of the original memes. I think if you, if you go to what's your meme.com or whatever it is, the catalogs memes, Wonderwall is one of the main ones. And I don't pretend to really, wow. I, don't, I don't pretend to really understand it. I think the idea is that it's like, 
everyone who sits in the hallway of their college dorm and plays an acoustic guitar, if they know nothing else, they know Wonderwall. Because, like, that's the one that people recognize. That's the one that's going to, like, get you girls. Like, all the most ridiculous shit. Dude, I picked up so many girls on River Street in Savannah playing Wonderwall. Like, so <laughs> I, would, I would, like, make so much money just, like, you know, just sitting out there with a guitar case. Yeah. Dude, you're, um, you're the meme. You're exactly the meme. You embody it. It's, it's, it's so interesting, like, that a song like that, it's like because of popularity, you know, because of how easy it is to play, there's all these different factors that do that. But I, again, I think it really shows how timeless the songwriting is, you know, mm -hmm. it's like another notch to me, even though it's grossly disgusting, like what, you know, even what meme culture is, I don't understand it at all. But, <laughs> you know, the fact that, that Wonderwall has made its way into like, household vocabulary almost yeah. you know you think of it that way like almost anybody knows what wonderwall is i mean you know I yeah mean, and it's it's weird and, and i i don't it's one of these songs that i'm i i hate when a song gets run into the ground so much that i hate it and that hasn't happened with wonderwall which i think also speaks to its timelessness i'm speaking personally i guess maybe people do hate wonderwall i very much like wonderwall yeah and i recognize that it's a meme uh, but somehow it's been able to withstand being ridiculed as a meme for so long because there's really nothing to ridicule. It's just a popular good song. It's a right. victim of its own popularity, if anything. Right, right. And I think, you know, it's it's the same reason why a lot of people hate like money by Pink Floyd. It's like because it's been on the radio for yeah. you know so many years and it just it gets overplayed. There's nothing inherently hateable about it. You've just heard it too many times. Exactly. And I think Wonderwall suffers from that. But again, it's like you know it's not suffering it's just that you've sold billions of copies you right. know you've you've made like an impact in that way and i think like it's it's interesting looking at them from that perspective of this like massive empire or this you know this brand but for me personally i think that that's not really how i i think of them i think of them as this emotive like foundational experience for me where you know being I, i'm i'm thinking like when um when what's the story came out i was 94 so i actually i was i remember it came out the summer that i was about to go to boarding school oh wow and uh, and i was leaving all my friends <laughs> and it was this like emotional distress and you know i was just like like wonder not wonderwall but don't look back in anger was like on repeat yeah I wouldn't, I just wanted, I didn't want to hear any other music i just wanted to hear that song and i just played it over and over and, and it probably was like, speaks to the role of nostalgia in this a little bit. Like, if you still enjoy this album that much, it's probably partly because of the role that it played in your life at that point. Yeah, totally. I think that that those songs and stuff, but I think what transcends that is is how I feel about what they do now, which is like, mm -hmm. you know, because there's things that I can look back and go, oh, that, you know, I also liked Goldfinger a lot. You know, it's not, I don't I like, do. I don't go listen to like Goldfinger and say like, man, these guys are really like pushing the needle. And, you know, I think that, I don't know, man, I, I ran to uh, here in your bedroom the other day and it was pretty enjoyable. Yeah. That, that, that song, um, that was a, that was a big song for me here in your bedroom. was a good one. <laughs> um, yep. I wasn't, I wasn't like super into that pop punk world, but I mean, you know, I have a, a I think I've even mentioned this to you before, but sometimes I think that like Green Day is the modern day Beatles because they, mm -hmm. you know, they just, everything they do is like so perfect, like hook, yeah. hooks and melodies and all that. Yeah, um, they got it down. Yeah. And, um, but you know, I think that, I think that Oasis, like they somehow have, they not only have their own legacy, but they, they are extending that legacy of the British sound as a whole. 
Mm-hmm. You know, and and honestly, I think you wouldn't have Coldplay without Oasis. Yeah, and I think Coldplay at some point has acknowledged that to a certain extent. But yeah, uh, it's, it feels like Britpop as a whole was supposed to have died. I guess with the with the advent of like Spice Girls and Teeny Boppers and Backstreet Boys and stuff. But it's almost like Oasis just kind of ignored that Britpop died and just kind of kept doing it. So, you know, 20 years later, they're still making more or less the same style of music and it's still there if you want it, which is cool. Yeah, totally. And, I, and, 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 th- and you know, one of my favorite bands, Elbow, I mean, you know, every time they put out a record, it's number one in the UK. And it's like, yeah. And I, and I look at that and I go, hey, there's two things I take away from that. One is that people in the UK aren't dumbasses like people in America. <laughs> they actually appreciate <laughs> oh, sure. really good artistic music. And two, Oasis paved the way for that. You know, and if you I, look at those uh, that footage from uh, the Liam documentary, those those the stadiums that he was still selling out in 2017, like I don't think that would happen in the U.S. I don't know what his tour has been like over here if he's even, if he's even had one, but like the number of people that are showing up and enthusiastically singing along to Liam's songs in 2017 shows that there's still something working over there. Yeah, and I think he finally, you know, that's something we didn't bring up, which I want to point out is that Liam and Noel haven't spoken in almost 15 years. Yeah, that's crazy. It's really sad. You know, that that was actually a whole talking point that I kind of forgot about. It's like you have a brother Mm -hmm. that's a little bit younger, right? I got two younger ones, yeah. Oh, and but you played in a band with one of your brothers. Mm -hmm. I played in a couple of bands with one of them, yeah. Yeah, so that's like an an interesting thing. Like, I mean, I'm assuming you don't hate your brother and you speak to him. (laughs) No, it it would be... Like, talk about a grudge. I don't even understand it. Like, to not yeah. talk to your brother for 15 years based on, I mean, not every brother pair has, like, the world's biggest band breaking up, underpinning right. their their friendship. Yeah. But it is it is wild to think about, especially now that they've been outside of Oasis for as long as they have been. Like, it's we are well past that. They have different careers. They have different families. Like, it's it's almost unfathomable that they have not been able to patch this up by now. But I guess... That's what the Gallagher's do. Yeah, I think it speaks to being like lost in ego. It it really speaks yep. to that. And and you know, I think to Liam's credit, to some degree, he seems like he wants a relationship with his brother, and he wants their families to, you know, he wants his kids to, to you know, I don't know. It seems like that. He didn't um, want to quite say it out loud, but yeah, I agree. I kind of got that impression as well. Yeah, I think that I think that it's Noel who Noel's the one that quit the band and took the, took his songs with him. <laughs> He basically said, I'm out of the band and I'm taking all my songs, which is all of them, yeah. um, you know, and, and has also been the person to say, look, I'm, I don't need you. I'm, I don't, I don't want to, you know, do that. And it's, it's, it's sad, you know, just as a human being, it's like, man, you know, try to rise above what this is in some way, find something, you know, even if it's behind the scenes and you guys want to keep playing, we hate each other in the public you know, yeah, it's cool, like guys, but... you're you're almost fifty. Like, there's just no reason to keep doing this. Like, wouldn't you rather be friends in old age and have your families know each other? Yeah. Than like kind of just continue this bullshit for that much longer. Yeah. So that that's that kind of it like hurts my heart just as a human being. It's like you think about people, you know, even people that are seemingly total assholes. It's like you know, I, I wish that they uh, I wish they could figure this out because there's nothing worse than like making some brilliant art that affects people and then not being able to appreciate it with the people you made it with, you know, yeah. like, because those are the only people that get it. They, they're the yeah. only people that really get that experience that, that you had. And it's, it's, it's pretty sad that it's, that that's kind of the course it's taken for them, but Hey, maybe it's the fuel that, that, 
makes them continue to do what they're doing, which is putting out cool music. I mean, it seems to be. I mean, what do we think the likelihood is of Oasis reunion in five years? What if what if they do make up and they're like, you know what, we're getting the band back together? I don't think that'll ever happen. But I think that, you know, Liam now is his and his concerts. He's playing Oasis songs, but he was never legally allowed to do that. They just recently, I guess, were able to negotiate through Noel or the record labels or something, the ability for him to actually perform the songs, which that's interesting. That is interesting. And I think it's also another like reason why Liam's doing well as far as touring is concerned, because he can do Oasis songs where yeah, there's that uh, clip in one of those interviews in the documentary where uh, Noel is being interviewed and they're at, they're saying like, hey, Noel, so you played some new solo stuff. You played some Oasis stuff. And he's like, yeah, I played my songs. Yeah. She's like, oh. <laughs> I know. It's like, what's the most dickheadish way I can answer this question? You know, it's <laughs> yeah. like, yes, like, you, you did everything. Yeah, it's it's like an egomaniac to the nth degree, but it's it's comical. It really yeah. is comical it's to watch much. it. It's just like. How the how can you maintain this level of just arrogance yeah. towards everything, you know? Um, I think that brings us to a good uh, kind of keep the antagonism going final question to me, which is the one you asked at the beginning. Who is making the best music right now? Like uh, at, at this moment in time, is it Liam or Noel who is really putting out the best output? I think my vote's for Liam. I was going to say that too. And I didn't think I was going to say that coming into getting ready for this conversation because I am much more familiar with High Flying Birds. I followed them. I've listened to all the records. And Liam, I really hadn't listened to. But his is more interesting to me for some reason. I I agree. I, I think I felt felt the same way. It's like I've been such a Noel fan. And I think it's it's him specifically that had the impact on me because mm-hmm. of his writing. Obviously, his it's his writing that I think is is the most important aspect of their band. Um, but I think if you're just looking at taking it at face value right now, you know, Liam's stuff is just, it's, it's better, mm-hmm. you know, it's, maybe it's, it's more compelling. Not, it's more compelling maybe because it's a little bit different. I feel like Noel is just still like, I think he has reached peak Noel Gallagher. Yeah. I think he has fully embodied who he was going to be and like fulfilled his potential but I guess Liam just had more room to grow maybe. So it feels like what he's doing is more interesting and he's being more creative with it. Yeah. You know, something that my girlfriend Sarah said is that he sounds, his songs now sound super youthful Mm -hmm. and you know, and that was an interesting thing too. It's like, you know why? Because they are youthful. He's not been writing songs for 30 years. Like his brother has, he's written a couple, but you know, his approach to the songs is, is a lot more, um, young it's just it it actually is more young because he just hasn't he hasn't uh, explored that space nearly as much as noel has yeah noel as we have seen has got a great formula but he is uncomfortable getting out of his box too much and liam just didn't have a box yet like he's creating it as we speak and it's it's pretty cool so far yeah and and he's doing it with the trust of like other people which i think is a, a really good way to approach it because you're not solely trapped into what you're able to come up with, which Noel kind of is. Yeah. Cause he's unwilling to work with anybody else. That's right. I think that he's going to be a lot more, he, he probably shuts down ideas more than Liam does because Liam's like, well, I've always been taking direction from someone, you know? Yeah. Yeah. It's interesting. It's like the ultimate irony that like Noel kind of took his book of songs and left in a huff and was like, I'll be fine on my own. 
but really like Liam's got more potential here at this point. Yeah, it's it's kind of exciting um, to think about. I mean, if anything, I'm just glad that they're both putting out music that I can potentially, you know, uh, enjoy. And, you know, for me personally, it's like they also, their records sound really good. They've got cool engineering. They're working with interesting producers. Yeah. And so there's that aspect to dig into. It's like, not only now am I going to get to hear these cool songwriters and what they're doing now, but like, I get to actually enjoy it where I'm at, right? As opposed yeah, to yeah. that nostalgia where it's like, well, the record right. sounded bad, but I was like in love with the songs. Or now it's like I get kind of the kind of both worlds, you know, these yeah. these cool songwriting, um, you know, adventures that they're going on and, you know, kind of uh, inspecting them as a producer and an engineer and kind of figuring out what they're all about. Yeah, young Deke going to boarding school had one reaction to Oasis, and then professional producer Deke has a very different one to current Oasis members, which is cool. They've yeah. kept this going for a really long time, and they give you they give you content to enjoy over the course of, what, uh, 25, 30 years? How long has it been at this point? I mean, 1994 is when they basically were discovered and put out their first record, so almost 30 years. 30 years. Like, yeah, but um, and it seems like that at least Liam is connecting with a younger audience. You know, I think that... Mm-hmm that's that's kind of an interesting take too i mean that that there are i don't know if noel is really connecting with a younger audience i think that liam is doing that better i was um, shocked to see that footage uh from the liam documentary of the like 13 and 14 year olds at his shows yeah because i guess it's i, I think that's probably another uk versus us thing i doubt he would have that draw over here uh but right. it seems like he's much more of an institution recognized over there where you know, parents who now have 13 year olds because they've been around for 30 years are like, Hey, you got to go see Liam Gallagher because like mommy and daddy really liked Oasis. <laughs> and they're like, cool. Well, yeah. And I mean, you know, people my age do have kids that are, yeah. you know, teenagers and, and older even. And I think that like, you know, it's not even that their parents are actively trying to get them into it, but they might've grown up listening to that in the household, yeah. you know? And so it's similar to this kind of we grew up listening to Garth Brooks. <laughs> I was going to say, yeah. Oasis is their Garth Brooks. <laughs> <laughs> I think that is a great spot to end on. That, yeah. uh, you know, o- Oasis has become someone's Garth Brooks. And <laughs> is that the takeaway? If that's the takeaway, this was successful. <laughs> yeah, let's leave it at that. I think, like, leaving on that note is, is, is very interesting. So, uh, Lewis, dude, this was, like, really fun. I had a great time talking to you about this. Me too. We could do it all day. I think we've covered a lot of good Oasis ground. I'm sure there's more to cover, but that was productive. Yeah, totally. Thanks so much, man. And uh, I, I hope we get to do something like this in the future. Yeah, let's keep it going. Sweet. Later, man. All right. I'm going to...